Hey, what's up? It's Jarrett. And uh, this is kind of a different one that um, I'm hoping that you'll enjoy. I'm working with a new outlet called Them, which is an LGBTQ publication online that's from the folks at Condé Nast. Condé Nast does GQ and Vogue and all those outlets. Um, and uh, they approached me about writing an article about a man named Michael W. Twitty. Michael is a culinary historian, and if you've never heard of that, he's going to explain what that means, but basically, he studies the origins of the foods that we pass along, not just like a cucumber or a melon, but like recipes and the things that we make and and love and pass along in our families, and it's a really, really cool and interesting field. He's just won two really big awards in the culinary world. They're called James Beard Awards. They're basically like the Oscars or, or the Golden Globes of the food world for his new book called The Cooking Gene. The Cooking Gene explores uh, his heritage through food. Uh, it's one of, uh, it's the first of three books that he's writing and he'll tell us a little bit about that as well. But He's a really extraordinary, dynamic man, um, and I really, really enjoyed getting to talk to him, and I hope that you enjoy this piece, um, this conversation, and you can check out the article uh, over at Them, and I'll make sure to put the link in the, the description of this article, um, in the description of this episode to the article, I should say. So uh, check out my conversation with Michael W. Twitty. It's such a cool name, um, and uh, enjoy it. <laughs> First of all, thank you for chatting with me today. Um, I I have to be honest, like I've kind of like binged a lot of content uh, on you in the last couple of days since I've uh, been giving being given uh, this assignment, and I'm just like super duper impressed with you, and I'm I'm excited to talk to you. Um, well, thank you. Yeah, for for people who don't know who you are, uh, give them the brief overview of who is Michael W. Twitty. So um, <laughs> that's dangerous. <laughs> it, the worst thing to ever have to do is to give your own bio, so forgive me. Well, yeah, because it's because well, I can I can tell myself I can self talk as well, but you know, right now for for a black male to sort of like to label it was one of the most dangerous things you can do. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm just being real. I mean, we we I mean we're we're right now we're living in the Donald Glover wars. Funny, I I get Funny. it. Yeah. So, um, so, how do you how do you tell people what you do? Because as a as you call yourself a culinary historian, which I think is really really cool. So uh, explain to people what that is. Okay, so culinary historian uh, is is just what it sounds like. It's, it's someone who studies um, the history and narratives and recipes, um, uh, uh, the cuisine of people. Someone who studies cuisine. And it's history, and it's story. And um, food historians, culinary historians, we tend to use the terms interchangeably, even though technically they're not the same. Um, I'm not going to even go into that. That's so far above my head. Okay. Um, even I'm not there yet. But um, basically, you know, why is it important? Why is it a thing? You don't go to school to learn this. I'm going to tell you that right now. Academics has not caught up to that principle that we, you know, should be studying culinary history. You can take classes in culinary history and gastronomy, all of that. But there's no PhD in this. And it really comes down to people who have a, a deep love and passion who have to follow the same rules of scholarship and representation that everybody else does. I'll make that very clear. You can't just make stuff up and run around and, 
publish whatever you want. You have to prove and do it soundly and do it on an academic basis. Um, whether it's inside or outside the academy. And I'm outside the academy for the most part. And so, and I'm one of the few black people who does this. Well, that's a full time job. That kind of leads me to uh, to your you know major moment of celebration recently. You are the first black man uh, to win the James Beard Award for your your new book called The Cooking Gene. Did I did I put all that correctly? For the book of for book of the year, yes. Yes, first bo- African American to win that. For people that don't know, the James Beard Award is kind of the Oscars of the food world. So James Beard Awards go out to restaurants and restaurant designers and chefs and and um, food writers. Um, and I think you're one of very few books that isn't technically a cookbook, correct? Okay, so talk to people, explain to us The Cooking Gene and, and how you came came up with this book. Okay, great. Uh, so The Cooking Gene, you know, my byline has been since forever. I think I got a tattooed on my um, forehead and tongue. Um, <laughs> the Cooking Gene is the story of my family told through food from Africa to America, from slavery to freedom. It's basically a culinary answer to roots. Nice. And it incorporates genetic genealogy, which is very hot right now, especially for African-Americans. I think for everybody else, it's kind of like a ha-ha, tee-hee, okay, that's great. But for black people, the whole narrative of where did we come in Africa, where did, where, where did our long-lost family go during slavery, do we have Native American or something else in us, was this, was this story true, was that story true, is really emotional and deep and profound. And this book is not typical, but that's exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to write the book that I never saw. Mm-hmm. And that is a book that talked about, you know, the personal side. You know, people think that all black narratives are out there, and they're not. You know, they're woefully inadequate. We haven't even scratched the surface. What we tend to do is, much like with our leadership, we tend to pin all of our, all of our stuff on one person, who we make, we make have carry the burden for all of our narrative. That is so and that's good. why I'm like, black folks, tell your damn story. I don't care who you are. I don't care how little you think you are or how big you think you are. We need every narrative we can find because someone now and someone in the future is counting on you to reveal yourself. So the first part of my book, I reveal myself as a historic interpreter, someone who does... You know, when I get out there, I'm not a reenactor. I don't reenact slavery, y'all. Don't, <laughs> and I get, don't get it twisted. There's some people on social media out there talking about Michael Twitty makes dinners for white people and he bows and scrapes and they and never seen such a thing. Well, I'm the furthest thing from it. Well, that, I and I want to make this very clear. My grandmother told me to my face, don't you ever lie to white people. Tell them exactly how you feel. And that's how we going to end this. Well, I think that I think that's an interesting thing because you I, I watched a, a piece that was done on PBS uh, about you where you were kind of like living um, the life of the people that you've been studying. Can you talk about um, that? I, yeah. I, the, so you know, I was at Columbia Williamsburg, and as any of my colleagues in living history can tell you, you put on those clothes at, at you know eight or nine, and you take them off by five. <laughs> We done. No, we done. We emancipated. Yeah. Harriet Tubman has arrived. The moth on the north side of the tree. You know, you know, white people don't run around calling you boy or gal. Your white colleagues have to respect you 
as a 21st century person. There is no, that's not first person interpretation. What that is, is, you know, what does it look and feel like? And in the field of living history, much like culinary history, there's very few black people, but there's a lot of interest and there's a lot of history there. But what happens when we aren't the ones telling the story? You see me? Yeah, for sure. What so- happens is people start lying on us. One museum in the South said, well, the Black Eyed Pea became popular in the South when the Confederate soldiers started eating a crap that was mostly that was mostly used for animals. And I'm like, wow. So that tells you that not having black people on that staff, black people telling that story, black people, you know, representing their ancestors means that a lot of people get the narrative that there was no black agency in bringing an African crop to the United States, which Robert E. Lee said was the unfailing friend of the Confederacy. Mm. His whole life, his whole life was based on black people, black labor, black food, black culture. And yet he is the archetype of the Southern white man. That is, that is not even irony. That is beyond absurd. And unless you have African-American people as scholars, as presidents, as board members, as CEOs, as interpreters, on, and as, excuse me, as visitors, mm. let me go on my rant on this. Black folks, go to these plantations, go to Williamsburg, keep them honest. We love it. Those of us, those places that have black staff or black people on staff, love it when black people come in and black families come in because we, we can get real. We can get, we already real, but we can get real and real. So you're, you should see these little, yeah. You're, you're doing like a living history where people can come and observe what it was like back in the day and, and get well, well, let's get this, let's get this accurate now. I, that's what I want you to if do I'm for cook, me. If I, yeah, if I'm cooking, if I'm cooking, I'm 21st century African-American scholar dressed in colonial clothing, not slave clothing. And I'll make this very clear because remember, you know, enslaved people's clothing and, and their material culture was colloquial and discretionary. And there's not one narrative that's going to be the, going to be the true, you know, for everybody. You know what I'm saying? Sure. So it's critical that people realize that if you really want that deal, I don't think there's a place in America that would even go there because it's so it, it's deep. <laughs> it, it's women without tops. It's children who had one raggedy piece of clothing for their entire childhood. It's men with no pants. It's a lot of stuff that's mm-hmm. deep. We're talking about a very idealized perception of how people dressed and looked, etc. Okay, so you're watching people of color cook and talk to 21st century people who are experts in their field. Same thing if you go to the carpenter or the silversmith. They are journeymen, they are trained, they're they're experts, they're stamped experts in an antique field. And their job is to tell you not only how people lived in the past, but how they feel about being in that role, you know, um, as a person of color performing a historic trade, which our ancestors performed, letting people know that black people were skilled craftsmen and craftswomen, that we were not just any old cook, we were the best cooks. When people come in and visit, they are seeing the cooking, we're talking about the African influence on American cooking, we're talking about the power dynamics, and we don't lie, we don't BS people. We straight up tell people, um, you know, look, if you mess that food up and the food wasn't on time, this is what could happen to you. And it's very interesting to see white people in particular, not always, because, you know, 
there's some that are very influenced right now, come into that space and go, yep, that's right, thank you for telling the truth. Other folks are just like, I never knew it was like that. I didn't know what slavery actually meant. And we're like, yeah, this is what it meant, and here we are representing our ancestors. We're not just playing, we're not playing a role. We are representing the millions of black people who went through this institution and could not live to tell about it for themselves. One of the things I saw you talking about in an interview that I would love for you to just kind of explain to our listeners and our readers is like something that we all might drink today as Jack Daniels, right? And I saw you talking about the way that Jack Daniels has been acknowledging that their recipe and the like the the birth of Jack Daniels, if you will, uh, had a had background with a slave. Can you explain that? Sure. So distillation and brewing. I mean, these were things that enslaved people were craftsmen of as well. You know, black people were pastry chefs. Black people were French trained cooks. You know, there, there's such a diversity of people brought to the food and drinking world. We were the, we were the, the julep makers and all these so-called tiki cocktails are really just West Indian cocktails that folks, Afro-Caribbean folks and Afro-Brazilian people invented. I mean, it's really, it's, it's, a, it's a deep history there. But, you know, in the case of Nearest Green, I mean, yeah, this, these, were, these were hereditary jobs. You know, your father was a master distiller. You've become one. He was a brewer. You'd become a brewer. And those kind of, those specific jobs weren't just, you know, you just pick people at random. And I believe that in some ways, they probably go back even further across the Atlantic to Africa. The folks who had very specific skills. That's another thing about uh, the narrative of slavery. People who had different, um, who had specific skills in their homeland were often, but not always, chosen to perform those same skills in enslavement in the Americas, which meant that it was an incredible passing of creativity, agency, and knowledge. We say that our ancestors arrived empty-handed, but they didn't arrive empty-headed. I I loved in the in the interview you talked about how you don't you don't choose um, people to come do work like that that aren't experts. Um, and I think oftentimes we we don't discuss slaves as like skilled laborers or as skilled craftsmen or as as really skilled at all. Like I think people don't think about that element of of enslaved people. And I, I just thought that was a really uh, beautiful way that you that you uh, articulated that thought. So I wanted to have you thank touch you, on thank that. You. Um, you recently tweeted, um, and this was a this was an interesting tweet, and my editor drew this to my, my attention. Um, the Root did a piece on you on on the Beard Awards, uh, and the headline said, "Inclusion won big at this year's James Beard Awards, but there is still progress to be made." And you retweeted it and quote tweeted, uh, "Glad to be included in this piece, but a little uncomfortable with it. Still working that out." Talk to me about that. Well, you know what, Eduardo was cute. He's a beautiful brother with a beautiful smile, with a with a, with a flagrant heterosexuality, and an excellent business model. He's the whole package. With a little black boy, he can put, you know, medals on and walk around. Eduardo is a friend of mine. I ain't talking shade about Eduardo, but if you read that article, the way it contrasts Eduardo's story, it's okay to focus on Eduardo and that piece. More power to him. 
because we need, you know, we need more Eduardo Jordans and more Michelle Bailey's. We need it in- infinitely. But my problem with the article was it did not acknowledge that I won two Beard Awards. And by the way, Marcus Samuelson is the most decorated person of African descent in history of the Beard. Until Eduardo won, I was the, I was the only black person whose ancestors were slaves, enslaved people, to have two of them things around his neck. Trust. Mm-hmm. And I feel that, you know, I have not often been, I mean, I'm on the Route 100 this past year. But in terms of black media, in terms of gay media, I don't feel as, 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 um, as visible. Mm-hmm. Because I'm, I, I'm, I'm a big guy. I own that. I own my black bareness. Um, I, I love it. I enjoy it. And, and you know, apparently in this country, if you're black and big and male, you don't have a football in your hands, but you have a book in your hand, you're worth nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, and people don't think, you know, and then, and then of course the other issue is I'm, I'm not, I'm not contrarian. I don't like that. I'm not, I'm just, I'm just me. Like every other black person, we're diverse, interesting people, a multicultural people. Um, we can be many things, but I'm Jewish. I'm considered, and people, some people have issues with that. I don't know. I just looked at it. There was a point in the article where they actually go, but you know, they mentioned me and it was nice. I mean, I was, I was very honored, very flattered, but it was like, they, it was like a, but there was a, there was a, you know, there was a clause there going, but the real star of this year is the water drugs. He got two beard awards. And I'm like, wait a minute. So did I. And Eduardo and me working on the same playing field because Eduardo does something I cannot do, which is run to restaurants, have a family, not have gray hairs in his head, and just you know be master blaster. Well, I'm like I'm writing and I'm doing my thing on my end. Something I think he has a different touch on for. So I didn't like the way it created an immediate hierarchy when I don't even see black media talking about food. How you gonna have a hierarchy in this article about food? And food people, and y'all even constantly follow. I don't have. There's not a single black paper that I know of. Maybe you know differently. I don't mean to speak out of turn. That has a food column. Where you know where are our food media? You know that's why that's why I was a little bit, a little bit disappointed. I I I kind of wanted to. I kind of wanted to have you talk a little bit about uh, your experience with inclusive inclusivity and the in food media and, and uh, I, I mean, you've touched on that obviously, but I mean, have you felt like, it sounds like you're already saying this, but I, I would love to have you expand on it. Uh, have you felt like because of your blackness or your gayness or your intersectionality with uh, race and religion, um, like, or, or your weight or all of those different things, how do you feel like those things have, um, have helped you or hurt you in, in media? Oh, both, both. Um, let's okay. So, so let's start with weight. Um, I there is a reason why I'm on my cover of my book, and I chose to. I chose a very let's let's use that as the window. I chose a very controversial picture, but I, it's my book. I wanted to be on my book. I didn't want a little decorative art piece on my book. I wanted to tour the rest of my life be able to stare back at my younger self. You get what I'm saying? Absolutely. Everybody deserves that. Everybody deserves that feeling of 
and the height of who I was, look at me. And I've had that moment where I've looked at pictures of myself when my esteem was low, or when I was younger and going, you was a, you was a, uh, a, a, a cute somebody. You were full of energy. You were, you didn't even realize it. You didn't even realize the power and strength that you had. So that was important to me. Just like reading my book on audiobooks, my first book. I don't think I'll ever do that again. But <laughs> I have it on so Audible. Long. Why not? Oh, it's so long. And they catch every little burp and this and that and breath and all. That's everything so on you. But, you know, I'm glad that I did it because, you know, I remember every time I listen to Malcolm or listen to James Baldwin or I listen to, like, Spoken Word by Sawyer Sanchez, I'm going, well, Sawyer Sanchez is still with us. But they're not. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and there's Jimmy Baldwin at his, at, his, at his most gloriousness talking to you as if he's right beside you. So I wanted that kind of representation. But, you know, there's people who always come for me about my weight because they're just like, well, you're promoting unhealthy food. How the hell do you know? Now, I don't have one single recipe for junk food on my blog. When I do my dinners, there's always leafy greens. There's always whole grains. There's always lean proteins. You know, I mean, come on now. So you feel like people That's are not- people assume things about the food that you're going to be making because of the way that you look? Yes, exactly. Okay. Yes. And that's one big thing. Another thing is that, you know, if I was more classic, if I had a more classically branded aesthetic as a gay bear, as a black man, well, you know, there's always, that's all an issue. My, the, the, um, if I may say so, there's a reason why I'm doing this narrative in, tri- in trilogy form. This was more about my African-American, Southern, black identity, touching on other parts of my identity, cooking gene. The next book is more about my Jewish identity and black Jewish culture and, you know, my faith. The third book is going to be about my LGBT identity. Okay. And, you know, already there's an issue there with bareness and blackness. I mean, we're just getting, we're just getting started with that. But I guess the point I'm trying to make is that when, you know, I was, um, you know, cisgendered, heter- you know, heterosexual-looking the gay appealing naked white man with a chiseled body who was cooking. Oh, I'd be the darling in the gay media. Oh, honey, no, no problem. Well, black folks, I think being gay and I think also, um, being a bigger guy. I mean, um, I think I'm also talking about slavery. I mean, I've struggled with my African American audience. I love my people. I wrote this book for my people. I wrote this book as a birthday present to my people on the 400th anniversary of their arrival. Mm. I wrote this book so that black people could look, could, could pull out that book off the, chain, off the shelf and go, we come from Louisiana, we come from Virginia, we come from South Carolina. This is our heritage, this is our story, this is who we come from. So they could tell their children that. So they could look at that book and go, oh, I need, I need to figure out what DNA test it takes. Let's, let's get this rolling. We want to do what he did. Let's preserve our recipes and preserve our heritage. But people weren't rolling like that. I do have a strong black audience, but it could be way stronger. And it could be way stronger if the representation of the media was a little bit more inclusive. Um, and then on the other hand, I'm, I, can't, I can't say that I'm ungrateful because, you know, I am a niche person. I am, I am unusual. <laughs> and that has helped me a lot. And just the fact that you know, I, I think the biggest thing beyond any label that I put on myself 
is the fact that I've embraced the totality of who I am, and I and people call me brave. I don't think I'm brave. I just know that when people come up to you and go, wow, because of you, I feel like I can write. Because of you, I feel like somebody looks like me, talks like me. I've had people pull me aside in little communities and go, I'm gay too. And, you know, you you make me feel proud to be out. I'm just because I'm out because of you. Or I'm of color and I'm, I'm struggling with people always doubting me because I'm black and I have this heritage. And you make me proud to represent us and say, no, you, have, you always have to consider black history. And I have Jewish people who are just like, you know what? You you give me renewed faith in what being a Jew can be. So on that level, on that very emotional level, you know, no matter what people say about me negatively, when I hear lots of people email me or send me in person these very profound things, that makes that covers all the negativity people give me. I'm I kind of want to touch a little bit more on on the gay element because um, I you talked about your bareness, you talked about um, you know weight. I'm curious about how your blackness has factored into your gay experience. Oh Lord, have mercy! See, I'm an aviat. What's that? I'm a I'm a house child. Okay. <laughs> yes, honey. I see. I see. My I grew up in. I grew up in the club and ball scene in D.C. Okay. That is my culture. And that taught me, I think a lot of, if I have any swag, if I have any sway, if I have any sash, <laughs> it comes from that. It comes from that worldview. It comes from that house music. It comes from that bravery to walk that floor and to, you know, act out. And what we call D.C. scuzz out, you know, really get into that music. Let it be a part of you. Um, I'm very, I, I love that Native Son did a little profile on their Instagram with me. I mean, I was very proud. I mean, I, I think I was more proud of that than like a lot of things I get because I felt so included. Mm. And the people who, you know, are on there just, uh, you know, Emil Wilbekin and you know, all those folks, I just, I look up to them. Emil's an I excellent really man. Look up to them. And, um, you know, I just, I, I mean, I've, I've grown up. Look at having these role models like um, what's um, George C. Wolf, mm-hmm. huge, you know, idol to me as a black gay man who just, you know, iconoclastically told the story of our history and who we are. James Baldwin, of course, um, and so on and so forth. I mean, we have so many people who are icons who I just like. That was how I, I grew up on that. I grew up on absorbing that. Nobody had to point it out to me because I had to find it for myself without an internet. I just figured these things out. And so when I work, when I represent myself as a gay person, it always rides with being a person of color because I have been fighting, you know, um, racism and prejudice in the gay community since I came out at the age of 16. And I mean, in a virulent way, I mean, I hate it. Um, and I think that, I think that one of the greatest pleasures I get is doing the really hard work of confronting how other oppressed communities, in my case, the American Jewish community, 
and the LGBT community can address prejudice towards producing anti-blackness within their own individual worlds. So that is hard work. It's really difficult work. But I think the way I comport myself and the way that I tell our stories puts people not so much at ease, but enables them to, to have genuine empathy with us and go, I never thought about it. I never looked at it that way. I can't behave the same way again. I can't overlook the concerns of gay men of color. I cannot overlook the concerns and viewpoints of uh, Jews of color. And that, that to me is, that to me is the legacy that I want to leave. I want to know how you feel gay media has received you, covered you and responded to you. So Jari has been very nice. Jari is a um, gay uh, men's food uh, publication um, there was another publication from out west that did um, a nice article with me, and, and I liked the fact that I got a nice picture in there. And was, you know, that kind of a face and body is really cool. But for the most part, I don't know. I don't know. I don't think I'm I'm really out there. <laughs> so you know, all pun intended. Um, I've been out of the closet since I was 16 years old. When I was 16, I came out in my school newspaper in suburban Maryland. I was the, if not one of the only few, I, don't, I think there was, I think I was the only um, openly gay student government president. You know, in the state of Maryland. Mm-hmm. But I learned very quickly that, you know, when you're not um, white and quote unquote pretty, that your gay doesn't matter as much as other people gay. And so I stopped looking for that. How did you learn that? I learned that because there was there was there was really um, there were a couple of articles at the time, you know, in the post. And I remember they came to our gay youth group and they talked strictly to the gay boys and gay girls separately. And I remember I was very vocal. <laughs> I was I was willing to be quoted. And they ended up choosing this this kid in our youth group who was, you know, he was, at the, he was very 1990s white gay boy. He totally looked the part. Mm-hmm. And he had his little earring in, he had his not too long, not too short hair. And he looked like he was the future twink of America. And here I was, you know, I'm the same person that I was when I was a teenager and I was 20 something. I really am. And big words and all. And, I remember they never used the word I said. And when R came out, his picture was all over the place. And other white people were in that group. They didn't take, they didn't, there was not one picture in that story with the people of color who were in that circle. And then I read Keith Boykin, who was another huge influence, um, and talking about how, oh, no, no, baby, this is not your story. This is the story of every single gay man of color and gay woman of color who is making inroads for civil rights for all, and yet you don't, you don't see them, you don't hear them. You know, challenging the military ban, challenging the sodomy ban, challenging the, the, the marriage ban. We were always there at the forefront, but we were not picked by LGBT media to be the representation. It was always somebody else who they felt was much more mainstream and passable. So I learned that real early. And so that has really driven me 
in terms of how I feel about um, media in general. I know. I know what it's like to be told you're not an off-the-shelf type, so forget it. You know what I'm saying? And it doesn't, it doesn't matter if it's one category or all the above. So how do you go about combating that? You be yourself. You just keep slaying. Don't catch up. Listen, I was told that my ideas about food and my ideas about teaching about slavery, teaching about our history and our culture and our ancestors was just not what the doctor ordered. Mm. And so I decided that I was going to get into the party one way or the other. I was going to break in the basement (laughs) (laughs) and come from from down up. I was going to climb that tree and I was going to come into the attic and come down. I was going to burn the house down and be outside waiting in my tuxedo with my own bottle of champagne saying, how come you relate to my party? (laughs) I think I burned the house down. I love it. I love it. Um, What is like three snaps, right? What is, what is, uh, before I let you go, because I know we're at time, um, what is something that you feel like people should know about the work that you do and its importance? It's democratic. There's room for everybody. Um, you can be centered in blackness, but have your arms open to the world. Mm. You can be you can be anchored in your ancestors and have something universal to say. There's no bubbles anymore. We are fools to believe that every single one of us is not intersectional and multicultural. 500 plus years after the disaster that was Columbus. We are fools to believe that. We are all a part of each other's story. And that is what makes us so complicated, so beautiful, and so important. And if anything happens from any of these awards or anything else I can achieve and do... My most important thing is bringing more of us in. I don't want to be the HNIC. I hate that tradition of being the head Negro in charge. <laughs> I want us to be a community, thriving, beautiful community of people who has a lot to say, a lot to do, places to be, places to be seen. And, you know, it's lonely out here, brother. It's lonely. It is so lonely when you are the only one in the room time and time again, or you're one of 10% or 5% in the room. And you can't even, and, and you know, it's like, what do we do with ourselves? And so the solution for me is bring more people in, get more people interested, engage, get a conversation going, and let people know that, it, yes, these are hard conversations to have, but food, in my case, has enabled me and enabled others to smooth things out and go, okay, we're going to sit down at the same table. We may not agree on everything. We will not agree on everything. But you will hear my truth. And you will hear my truth the way it was meant to be said because I'm the one telling you you didn't tell me. So that's what I want people to know about my work. That it's black-rooted to end this white splaining. I, I love that. Okay. Um... Last thing, you said that you are working on a couple of other books, and uh, when I when you got on the phone with me, you said that uh, it's been crazy. I'm guessing you meant since the Beard Award. What's been what's been going on? What's coming up next? What can people expect from you? 
next week, um, I'm actually at a plantation in Kentucky the whole week. Um, I'm hoping to hang out with Padma. Papa nice. and me, Papa, 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 me and me are cool now. I'm okay. Uh, I was like, oh, it's done. She actually saw my book on her, her, um, her assistant's desk. Um, Auntie, hi, Anthony, if you're listening. And Anthony was like, yeah, this is a book by this guy. And she was like, okay. She brought the book and had to buy him another book. She loved the book so much. That's awesome. That was Jella Lofton, loved the book. So next week, I'm hoping to see her, but I'm also going to be doing a taping with Andrew Zimmern. A second go at Bizarre Foods okay. down there in Louisville, so it's gonna be it's gonna be a busy and fun week, and you know more traveling, more everything. Oh, and oh, I want to mention this: we are it's gonna be crowded, but we're we're starting a tradition of doing. Um, this year we had our first culinary pilgrimage to West Africa. Wow! It was all black chefs who had never been to the continent except for me, and then there were this next year coming. We're trying to get um, some of our heavy hitters, some of our James Beard Award winners and nominees and community chefs and people who just never thought they'd ever get to go um, to go on a, um, probably, we're going to cap it at 12. It's, it's not easy to do with a lot of people. But we're going to go on a second culinary pilgrimage to West Africa. This time, last time we went to Ghana, this time we're going to Togo and Benin. I love that. So yeah, that's what's going on. A lot of stuff. Very, very cool. Um, thank you so much for this conversation. That's Michael W. Twitty, someone who I'm pretty sure you've not heard of before, who has a job that I'm pretty sure you've never heard of before. Really cool getting to talk to him. You can check out my article on Michael uh, at Them. Them is an LGBTQ outlet um, done by the folks at Condé Nast, and uh, it's pretty cool. So uh, you'll see the link in the description of the episode after the article posts. Have a great day. I'll talk to you soon, and uh, tweet me or email me. Let me know what you think about these bonuses that we're doing as I'm figuring out the next incarnation of Back to Reality and the new show and all that kind of stuff. You can find me on all the socials at Jarrett Hill, and I will see you next time.